Hi, uh, before we get started, a bit of a content warning. Today's episode includes reference to sexual violence. Nothing overly graphic or anything like that, but there is some discussion of the abuse the Empress Eupraxia reported suffering at the hands of her husband, the Emperor Henry IV, some of which was sexual in nature. I prefer to err on the side of caution and let you know ahead of time. If this was a TV show, I could use that little black box with the letters, but alas... If for any reason you feel this topic might make you uncomfortable, you can jump ahead past the opening to 5 minutes, 29 seconds. Okay, on with the show. 1095, Piacenza, Italy. For seven years, Pope Urban II had fought tooth and nail to assert his prominence. Despite the fact that Rome was held by his rival, the antipope, Clement III, 1095 marked the turning of the tide for Urban. The Pope now prevailed almost everywhere, and so he prepared a general council to be held in the city of Piacenza, both against his schismatic rivals and amongst them. Piacenza was a symbolic blow. It was located in the Archdiocese of Ravenna, and Clement, or as the reformist camp referred to him, Ghiberto, had once been the archbishop there. So staging this synod in Clement's backyard was a sign of Urban's growing confidence. Just a year earlier, Urban had even gained access to the Lateran Palace in Rome, and though his grip was tenuous, it was a foothold that could lead to a permanent removal of Clement. As for Clement's patron, the German Emperor, Henry IV, well, Urban had made much progress there as well. The Emperor's depraved cruelty was such that his own family sought Henry's downfall. Urban, with the aid of the reformed papacy's most powerful ally, Matilde di Canossa, ruler of Tuscany, had secured alliances with not only the emperor's son, Conrad, king of Italy, but the emperor's own wife, Eupraxia, daughter of the Grand Prince of Kiev, Vsievolet. Henry had married Eupraxia only a few years earlier, in 1089, after the death of his first wife, Bertha of Savoy. But the marriage seems to have turned sour early on. In 1093, Conrad had revolted, further weakening the imperial party's weak position in Italy. And in that same year, Eupraxia had fled the castle she was being held at by Henry and sought refuge at Canossa with Matilde. Then, in 1094, at a synod in Constance, Eupraxia had provided a letter, which was read aloud, that described horrible abuses she had suffered at the hands of her husband. Both Conrad and Eupraxia came to Piacenza, ready and willing to denounce the emperor. Also present were 200 bishops, including the Archbishop of Bavaria, Diemo of Salzburg, Gebhard of Constance, and the Archbishop-elect Arnulf of Milan, who had come to be consecrated. In total, nearly 4,000 church officials and more than 30,000 laymen from across Italy, Burgundy, France, Germany, Bavaria, and other provinces. So many were in attendance that no church in town was sufficient to house all of them, and thus Urban was compelled to celebrate the event in the countryside, outside the city. In case you're worried this was an inappropriate measure, his supporters were quick to note that Pope Urban did not do this without the authority of a credible example. For after all, that first legislator, Moses, taught legal precepts to the people of God in a field, and the Lord instructed his disciples, not in houses, but on a mount and in a field. Masses are likewise celebrated outside churches when necessary, though not ignorant of the fact that churches have been specially designated for these celebrations. Thus, in the middle of Lent was the Synod convened. From March the 1st until March the 7th, at least 15 canons were published. There were those which condemned concubinage, those which condemned simony, and of course, many which condemned the schismatics and their figureheads, the false Pope Clement III and the false emperor, Henry IV. To that end, Pope Urban and the rest of the council granted a hearing to the Empress Eupraxia, so that she might publicly speak to the depravity of her estranged husband's crimes. Eupraxia disclosed the unheard of filth of fornication to which her husband had subjected her. Henry had given himself over to a heretic cult, the Nicolaitans, and he had forced Eupraxia to participate in their perverse rites. Henry had ordered his wife gang-raped by other men and attempted to use her in a black mass. He had even tried to have her raped by his own son, her stepson, Conrad. 
Conrad, also present, corroborated these events and explained that it was this abuse that had obligated him to rebel against his monster of a father. Eupraxia's horrific trials fell on the merciful ears of Pope Urban, who, knowing that Eupraxia had been an unwilling participant in this foul behavior, absolved the woman of the penance which would have otherwise been owed in such circumstances, as she had shown her valor in willingly and publicly confessing her sin. These things, among others, were proclaimed at Piacenza, Lord Urban showing himself to be the rightful head of the universal Christian church. Accordingly, a legation came to this synod from the east, from the Constantinopolitan emperor, Alexios Komnenos, who humbly implored the Lord Pope and all the faithful of Christ to offer him aid against the pagans for the defense of the Holy Church, which they had already almost annihilated in the east, occupying the regions up to the walls of the great city of Constantinople. The Lord Pope promised indeed by oath that men would journey there with God's help, and to the best of their ability would provide aid to the emperor. Following Piacenza, Pope Urban would prove that this oath was more than mere words. He would commit himself to the task of raising an army to take the cross, travel east, and fight a war in the name of Christ. And welcome to History of the Ultramare, episode 2.5, Don't Call It a Comeback. Here we are. We've talked about the Franks, we've talked about the Pope, we've talked about Holy War, and we've talked about pilgrimage. We are now arriving at the inciting incident for the First Crusade and, well, the entirety of the Ultramare. Pope Urban II's appeal to Latin Christendom, an appeal that will be answered with a very eager, hell yeah. Now, originally, I wanted to cover all of 1095 in one episode but the runtime would have been unwieldingly long, so today we will focus on the Council of Piacenza, which we heard about in the opening today, thanks in large part to the account of Bernald of Constance, a priest aligned with the Reform Papacy. So, you know, take his perspective on events with Dead Sea-level grains of salt. The Council of Piacenza is the perfect event to explore the terms of the initial alliance, for lack of a better word, between Alexios Komnenos and Pope Urban II, as well as how the relationship with Henry IV influenced Urban's decisions and the space in which he could operate, both physically and ideologically. And next time, we'll be focusing on the more famous 1095 Council, the one at Claremont just a few months later. Now, this episode and the next one are going to be asking a lot of questions and giving a lot of half-answers. Unfortunately, the origin of the First Crusade, like so many other events we've covered, is poorly sourced. Not that there's a lack of sources, really, but more that it suffers from success. Many of the accounts we have were written after the fact, and their authors often modify how they present past events to create a more solid narrative. This is still, however, the history of the Uchmer, and in exploring why and how this distortion took place, we can begin to lay the groundwork for the politics the Uchmer states will find themselves wrestling with, pretty much straight out of the womb. In the words of Thomas Asbridge in The First Crusade, A New History, which I honestly just love for its excellent prose, quote, the precise details of the mechanisms of crusade dissemination and recruitment, and the full range of Urban's expectations, must remain in the shadowy half-light between theory and demonstrable reality. That is not to suggest that these lines of inquiry are without value, just the opposite. Even the partial traces of evidence and explanation are profoundly revelatory. Observing the impact of the crusading ideal is akin to tracing the spread of a virulent disease within a living organism. The dispersal and effect of an illness may disclose a great deal about the nature of the afflicted host. Similarly, even limited success in charting the response to Urban's preaching can furnish significant insights into the nature of 11th century society. It can, perhaps, even offer a brief glimpse into the essence of the medieval mentality. Exploring the motives and intentions of the First Crusaders as they took the cross may also help to explain their reactions to the appalling trials and remarkable triumphs 
of the next four years. End quote. To stretch Asperger's metaphor a bit farther, it's best to view this crusading disease, which was about to infect all of Europe, as mutating from the objectives and practices of the 11th century church reform movement. Urban had, after all, not only been a monk and prior of the reformist stronghold, the Abbey of Cluny, but he'd been a protege of the quintessential reform pope, Gregory VII. In episode 2.2 and 2.3, we went over the development of this reformed church and how it had begun to view holy war as a very useful tool in establishing hegemony over all of Christianity. Historian Jean Fleury sums this development up very well in L'Église et la Guerre Sainte, de la Paix de Dieu à la Croisade, The Church and Holy War, From the Peace of God to the Crusade. Again, this is a case where I don't have the English translation. I'm actually not sure there is one, so this is my own translation. Any errors or misrepresentations are thus my fault. Quote, The war isn't holy because the enemy is an infidel, but the other way around, it is in and of itself considered holy because of the fact that it was preached by the Pope, carried out under his orders, with the intention to defend the interests of the Holy See. This is evident when the adversary is neither Saracen nor heretic, but nevertheless threatens the vital interests of the Holy See. This is the case, for example, when Leo IX recruits Milites to defend the Papal States against the Normans threatening them, and when he rewards with the crown of martyrs those who die on the battlefield of Civitate in 1053. These martyrs admitted to paradise carry out therefore a sanctified war, and the quality of their adversary has here nothing to do with it. Two centuries of preceding popes had been no less bellicose than those of the 11th century, less still were they pacifists. What changed in the 11th century was the new dimension that the papacy took on in the world, the reinforcement of its authority within Christianity, and the considerable growth of its ambitions and of its interests. That growth came with the pope's clear will to take charge of the interests of the Holy See, expanded and confused with those of the church, indeed with those of Christianity. For the Holy See, it was no longer a question of fighting to conserve the patrimony of St. Peter, like in the time of the Carolingian emperors, nor to acquire or preserve independence, later hegemony in Italy, but of trying to gain access to what we would call today leadership throughout Europe. End quote. I want to point out that there were two words I didn't translate here. The first is milites, that is, the Latin term for knights. At least in this context. Knighthood is a tricky concept, to say the least. And the second is leadership, which Jean Fleury wrote in English, in italics, of course. He said, verbatim, Ce que l'on nommerait aujourd'hui le leadership dans le repentier. These anglicisms, I tell you, clearly Fleury's due to get a strongly worded letter from l'Académie Française any day now. Pourquoi dire leadership quand on pourrait dire rôle de dirigeant? Now, as for the aims of the Reformed Church, I don't want to go overboard and make it sound like Pope Urban or Pope Gregory or Leo were cynical, conniving figures solely in search of political power. From their perspective, they were the foundation of the Christian church, which was the source of all that was good in the world, and for the Pope to gain more influence in the secular world could only be pleasing to God. They believed they were uncovering the path to a better world, being shown the way by God. You know, Jesus take the wheel. They just did as he commanded. Of course, again, they were God's representative on earth. So what they thought was right was, of course, what God commanded. But you know what they say. The Lord moves in mysterious ways. Sometimes he'll come in at an angle. Other times he can hover and swoop. Sometimes he can even come in from beneath, like a worm or mole. The Lord, it's his call how he chooses to maneuver. And that means God's will can be a bit debatable. Even in their own day, these reform popes all faced a decent amount of criticism. Not only criticism of their methods, which could come from all manner of lesser clergy, but criticism of their entire project, which often stemmed from competition for the role of universal Christian ruler. As we discussed in episode 2.2, this position was also coveted by the Roman emperors, both Byzantine and German. It stands to reason that these two figures would play key supporting roles in the Reform Papacy's largest military venture to date. In 1095, these two roles were being played by the Greek Vasilech Romaion Alexios Komnenos and the German Kaiser der Römer Heinrich Henry IV. 
Uh, I actually don't know how to say the fourth in German. I'll have to ask my wife. Um, she speaks German. I think it is through the lens of Urban's interactions with these two fellas that we can best understand the events of 1095. We can find these three forces colliding at the Council of Piacenza. So let's start by catching up with Urban's position in 1095 and how he addressed his imperial relationships at Piacenza. Now, neither the German nor the Greek emperor had a history of cooperation with the reform papacy. If you recall, Urban's predecessor and mentor, Pope Gregory VII, had actually excommunicated both of them. Alexios pretty much as soon as the new emperor came to power in 1081 as part of a deal with the Norman Robert Giscar of Oatville, who was invading the Roman Empire, supposedly to place his future son-in-law, the former emperor Mikhail V, back on the throne. See episode 1.13. In return for his excommunication and the pope's alliance with the Giscar, Alexios allied with the German king and paid him off to invade Rome in 1084. We'll come back to that decision. All of this was on top of the excommunication of the ecumenical, or universal, patriarch Mikhail Kerularios by the papal legates in 1054, the event known as the Great Schism. So it's clear that ties between the reform papacy and Constantinople had been a bit fraught. In episode 1.16, we discussed Alexius's early years and his struggle to ensure political majority in a rundown system, including the attempted coup of 1094, which had involved the emperor's own brother. As we talked about in episode 1.16, Alexios was also very invested in church affairs, and he took a very active role in the church, which he likely saw as necessary to securing his rule. Now, ideologically, this was THE Christian church, and the pope in Rome was subordinate to HIM. But the political reality meant that he was going to have to enter into negotiations to repair the schism on more even footing. We'll talk more about what Alexios actually wanted from Urban in a bit. For now, we'll talk about things from Urban's point of view. Urban was named Pope in 1088. He was a native of France, born in northern France, and later a monk at the Abbey of Cluny in eastern France. But due to reasons we'll get into in a second, he actually spent much of his early papacy in southern Italy, which was under the control of the Normans, who had been on-again, off-again allies of the Reform Papacy but following the death of both the Giscar and Pope Gregory, they'd become somewhat more reliable. A key point here is that Southern Italy and Sicily were not traditionally Latin Christian. Uh, Sicily had of course been under the control of the Muslims, but Muslims rarely forced conversions. Egypt and the Levant were only now in the 11th century becoming majority Muslim, after centuries of Muslim rule. So Sicily, like Southern Italy, was still Christian. But like I said, not Latin Christian, but Greek. They had long been a part of the Byzantine Roman Empire, and those traditions were still strong throughout the region. Though Latin Christian traditions had come in along with the Lombards and then the Normans. Much of Urban's early work was limited to this context, and doubtless, he'd had to grapple with the complex nature of the multicultural state of the region, in which many still looked to Constantinople, not Rome, for spiritual guidance. There can be no doubt that the East-West Schism, as we know it now, was of primary concern to Urban. So, in 1088, soon after being elected as Pope, Urban lifted Alexios' excommunication, allowing the Pope and the Emperor to start from a place of tabula rasa, you know, clean slate and all that. He had even sent a delegation to Constantinople in 1089, but discussions had broken down, likely because Alexios had refused to agree to papal supremacy. However, it seems that in 1090, Alexios had asked the Pope for aid, fighting the Pechenegs. Although it's not clear if the papal forces actually arrived, we can see that the seeds of both religious rapprochement and mutual military aid were present when in 1095, Alexios sent a group of envoys to meet with Urban. And they found him at Piacenza. Now, we don't know exactly what went down, but we do know that the envoys asked Pope Urban for aid in recruiting an army to combat the Seljuk Turks under Kilij Arslan in Anatolia, and presumably Urban agreed. What he would get in return is something we'll be coming back to later on, because right now we have to ask a very important question. What the fuck's the Pope doing in Piacenza? Isn't the Bishop of Rome supposed to be in, you know, Rome? Well, see... About that, 
we discussed the events that surrounded Gregory VII's departure from the city, most recently in episode 2.2, but also back in episode 1.13. The most important thing to remember is that when the German king, Henry IV, finally succeeded in taking Rome and getting himself crowned emperor of the Romans, he also installed his very own pope in the city, the former bishop of Ravenna, Ghiberto, who had taken the papal name Clement III. Sharp-eared listeners will remember that Henry's dad, Henry III, had named Clement II, the first of the so-called German popes. It's clear that this new German papal wonder team was looking to remind everyone of the precedents for German-backed popes. Clement would go on to challenge the authority of not only Gregory VII, but his successors, Nicholas III, Urban II, and even the next guy, Pascal II. Something to keep in mind is that Rome was not just a prize waiting to be won. It was a city of some substantial size and importance. Often, the Pope had to negotiate with the big local players if he wanted to cement his position as Pope. Though Gregory, who was a native Italian and seemed to have been educated at Rome, was able to wrangle the local elites into backing him, Urban, a Frenchman, was unable to do the same thing. And it seems like, for much of the 1080s and 1090s, it was really Clement who reigned in Rome. Historian Chris Wickham, in his book Medieval Rome, Stability and Crisis of a City, 900-1150, uses the dating of charters to get an idea of how much support Clement had, versus the reform popes. So basically, when you wrote a charter, the way the dating worked was you would write in the third year of the rule of Alejandro Magno, Supreme Khan of Khans, Shahanshah, and Universal Emperor of the Romans. As Rome was ruled by the Pope, it was the Pope's name that they used as the ruler. That means that these documents give an indication as to how many people accepted one Pope versus another, because they would naturally write the name of the Pope they viewed as the legitimate one. So Wickham says, quote, I have stressed the Clementine consensus before, but there is no doubt that Clement III faced more serious structural problems than Hildebrand Gregory had. He was pope during a civil war, and his own rivals, Victor III and Urban II, did frequently seek to get into the city, to the Settizonio in 1086, to Trastevere, and the Civitas Leoniana in 1087, to the Isola Tiberina in 1088, throughout much of Rome briefly in 1089, to the Frangipani Munitio beside Santa Maria Nova in 1093, and to the Laterano in 1094, which Urban may well have kept hold of and throughout Rome in 1099. But charters dated by Victor are unknown in the city, and there are only three for Urban, as against 29 for Clement. Such dating clauses indicate a hegemony for Clement that was near total until 1094. Clement, on this basis, was broadly accepted in the city for 10 years, with more neutrality visible in the last five years of his reign, when he probably no longer controlled the Laterano. End quote. Nowadays, Clement III is known as an anti-pope, an illegitimate pope, and there is, in fact, a quote-unquote actual Pope Clement III, who the Catholic Church maintains was a different guy who took that name and ordinal number, which had never been used before, in 1187. However, calling 11th century Clement III an anti-pope and leaving it at that is a bit of an anachronism. As Chris Wickham points out in a footnote, quote, Note that I do not use the term anti-pope in this book. It ill-serves a pope with as long-term a power base as Clement, and even in the case of more ephemeral popes, the term simply implies history written by the eventual winners. It is inconvenient that two popes are called Clement III, but it will be clear who is meant from the context, as they ruled a century apart. End quote. Given the fact that Clement actually controlled Rome and was recognized throughout Europe, particularly in Germany, we can really say that if anyone was the real pope for much of the 1080s and 1090s, it was Clement. Urban was a pretender to the throne, but his pretensions were obviously a real threat for Clement and the imperial faction as a whole. Urban had his supporters, and as Wickham points out, he and his predecessor Nicholas did manage to gain limited entry to the city at times. By 1095, he seems to have been able to bribe his way to control of the Lateran Palace, which had been given to the Bishop of Rome centuries earlier by, who else? Constantine the Great. So Urban had a foothold in the city, but at any moment, that foothold could be torn away. And as I put it back in episode 2.2, Urban was on the campaign trail for much of his papacy. 
In his early years, mostly in southern Italy, but Piacenza would see him begin to travel throughout Italy and France, trying to muster support to threaten both Clement and, of course, the man behind this so-called anti-pope, the German emperor Henry IV. Urban excommunicated Henry once again. Really, he restated uh, his previous excommunication. Pope Gregory had already excommunicated him twice, once before Canossa and then again in 1080, and he'd restated the excommunication himself in 1084. That brings Henry's total up to four. Four excommunications. Ah, ah, ah. Seems like overkill. Golly, I, I can't imagine he'll get excommunicated again. This answers the question as to why Urban was in Piacenza, which was technically part of the Holy Roman Empire, but as we mentioned a few times by now, Italy was really going its own way. In fact, the decision to hold the council at Piacenza was a bit of a direct snub to Clement III. See, the city of Piacenza is within the Archdiocese of Ravenna, which was Clement's home turf. Still, Piacenza is physically much closer to Milan, a city firmly under the influence of Matilde di Canossa, Urban's most powerful ally. Piacenza was the grand council Urban had longed for since the beginning of his papacy. It had attendees from all over Latin Christendom. Our opening cites the numbers from Bernald of Constance, about 4,000 church officials and 30,000 laymen. This number is almost certainly inflated. Piacenza could only have housed around 8,000 people total at the time. So to think that the population could have been multiplied by a factor of four in an era when food supplies were nowhere near as plentiful as you might find in an event like Woodstock or Coachella is a bit of a stretch of the imagination. Not necessarily impossible, though. With the help of someone like Matilde, there could have been arrangements made for food and other supplies to be brought in for the event. But still, it's an inflated number. Regardless of the specific figures, Piacenza was certainly a huge affair. We might think of it as only the seed for the First Crusade, but in the context of the times, it was really Urban striking a huge blow against the imperial faction, in large part thanks to the participation of two of Henry's immediate family members. Now, see, a few years earlier, in 1093, Urban and longtime Reform Papacy ally Matilda di Canossa had convinced Henry's son, Conrad II, King of Italy, to revolt. Quick side note about Conrad, he was technically Duke of Lorraine as well, which was a title that had previously belonged to a guy named Godfrey IV, Godfrey the Hunchback. When Godfrey had died, he'd named his nephew as successor, but Henry IV had ignored Godfrey's succession plans and instead given the title to his, at the time, two-year-old son, Conrad. In reality, Conrad barely exerted any power in Lorraine. He was much more based in Italy. Why does this matter? because that nephew that Godfrey had intended to inherit the Duchy of Lorraine was Godfrey of Bouillon, future First Crusader and first ruler of the Kingdom of Jerusalem. We'll be talking more about Godfrey in a few episodes, but keep in mind this complicated relationship with Henry IV. So back to Piacenza in 1095. Now, apart from convincing Henry's son, Conrad, to go into rebellion, Urban had also managed to forge an alliance with Henry's wife, this is not Bertha of Savoy, who we talked about in episode 2.2. She had died in 1087, and then Henry had married a Kievan princess, Eupraxia, whose name is also Latinized as Praxedis, and who's also known by the German name she took after marrying Henry, Adelheid, or in English, Adelaide. Eupraxia, by the way, was the granddaughter of the Grand Prince of Kiev, Yaroslav the Wise. By all accounts, Henry IV was a very abusive spouse, and in 1093, Eupraxia fled to Canossa, where she sought the aid of Matilde di Canossa, the ruler of Tuscany. Despite Conrad's claim to being king of Italy, and Italy technically being part of the Holy Roman Empire, Matilde was the true regional power. Conrad is often painted as just a puppet of Matilde's, actually. Matilde, who, just in case you forgot, was a longtime ally of the Reform Papacy, must have been thrilled. Well, once again, content warning, as we'll be discussing the nature of Henry and Eupraxia's relationship shortly. If for any reason you would prefer to skip over this discussion, jump ahead to 36 minutes, 45 seconds. In 1094, Eupraxia submitted a written account of Henry's abuse to a church synod, and then in Piacenza, she appeared in person to make the declaration we heard in the opening, accusing her husband of having joined a heretic sect, the Nicolaitans, and of forcing her to participate in sex with other men including an attempt to offer her to Conrad, which he refused outright, then rebelling against his perverse father. With Conrad's corroboration, it was a heavy blow against the German emperor's legitimacy. 
Henry already had a documented history of marital problems. He was an adulterer, and as I briefly mentioned in episode 2.2, he had tried, albeit unsuccessfully, to divorce his first wife, Bertha. Apart from the denunciations coming from his own wife and son, there were other charges of more serious sexual misbehavior and crimes leveled against him, ranging from sodomy and incest to rape. It did not paint a good picture, to say the least. As we discussed last time, medieval Europe was a public era. This went doubly so for those in charge. A ruler's divine right to rule could be contradicted by proof of their immorality, and nothing says immorality more than sexual deviance. As Megan McLaughlin points out in Disgusting Acts of Shamelessness, Sexual Misconduct, and the Deconstruction of Royal Authority in the 11th Century, quote, At no point was sex more salient in political writing than in the second half of the 11th century. In part, of course, this had to do with the reform of sexual morality that was reaching its peak in this period. Not only the European-wide circles of churchmen associated with Pope Gregory VII, but also a wide range of idealists, with other affiliations, were already preoccupied with sexual matters. They were engaged in campaigns to enforce obedience to the decrees of the Church on clerical marriage, consanguinity, adultery, and so forth. Royal and Episcopal sexuality quickly became the front line in this campaign. Not only should bishops and kings help enforce the laws of the Church, but they themselves should conform to them. As many reformers were fond of pointing out, a ruler should be adorned with all the virtues, in order to present an example of them to his subjects. Even before the Gregorians began to claim that kings were subject to ecclesiastical authority, it was already being argued that a dissolute king could expect to be punished by God, not only for his own sexual misconduct, but also for leading his people into disobeying divine law. The general atmosphere of reform certainly lent accusations of sexual misbehavior directed against religious and secular leaders a more powerful charge. Nevertheless, it would be a mistake to assume that the prominence of such accusations in political discourse during the second half of the 11th century was simply a reflection of reform activity. Sex was, on the contrary, doing important ideological work in texts from this period. End quote. McLaughlin goes on to indicate how polemicists, that is, writers who engaged in debate, used these accusations to lend legitimacy to rebellions in Henry's empire. Quote, Accusations of sexual misconduct were extremely useful to polemicists not only because they could be expected to arouse disgust and anger in their audiences, but also because they carried powerful political implications. The linkage between desire and disobedience made it possible to argue that a ruler like Henry was not ordained by God. The association between sexual and political dominance made it easy to depict someone like Henry as a tyrant. According to Lampert of Hirschfeld, Henry was cruel, faithless, stubborn, and arrogant. He failed to respect proper legal procedure, undermined the social order, and placed his personal interests before the interests of the res publica. Thus, rebellion against him was fully justified. End quote. It's not entirely relevant for us whether these accusations were true. The adultery was almost certainly true, and probably the rape as well. The sodomy in this context meaning sex with men, or really young boys, well, maybe. The incest, probably not. And as for Eupraxia's allegations that Henry had had her gang raped, probably the most horrific of those ascribed to the German emperor, well, in Henry IV of Germany, 1056-1106, I.S. Robinson says, quote, The wrongs of Eupraxia continued to be recalled in Gregorian polemics for half a century. Her public statements at the Synod of Constance and the Council of Piacenza have never been taken seriously by modern scholarship, not because scholars could accurately judge the Empress's mentality or the Emperor's conduct, but because of their knowledge of the nature of 11th century propaganda. Polemicists were accustomed to pay no heed to what was done or not done, but to use fictions in order to convince their audience. The story of Eupraxia's wrongs became public after she had taken refuge at the court of Matilda of Tuscany, a court which for more than a decade had been one of the most important centers of papal polemic. Eupraxia's public statements were formulated in the feverishly anti-Henrician atmosphere of this court, perhaps drafted by one of the learned Gregorians who acted as Matilda's advisors. Whatever had driven the empress to leave her husband's court, she had now committed herself to the Wealth Ganosa coalition, and in return for the protection of these allies, she must support their propaganda war against the emperor. End quote. However, McLaughlin, in the same article I quoted earlier, has this to say, quote, Before we simply dismiss the queen's claims, we should consider her possible motivations, as well as Henry's. Why did she say what she did, and so publicly too? It is not enough to assume that Eupraxia hated Henry and wanted to escape from her marriage. 
for other accusations would have served that purpose with much less damage to the queen herself. She might, for example, have accused him of heresy, or, for that matter, of sodomy. What is often forgotten is that Eupraxia herself, not Henry, was the chief victim of the scandal of 1094-1095. The particular charges she made at Constance and Piacenza ensured that she could never remarry. What man of any standing would want a wife who admitted to having been, quote-unquote, prostituted to many men? Her charges also poisoned the only other honorable option open to the daughter of a royal house in this period, the monastic life. Eupraxia did eventually return to Russia and become a nun, but in the East, as in the West, only virgins or chaste widows were honored as brides of Christ. A woman, quote-unquote, defiled by many men, could pursue a life of penance in a nunnery, as Eupraxia in fact did, but could never expect to exercise much authority there. Her claims probably had only a limited effect on Henry, but they destroyed her life. The only plausible explanation for Eupraxia's behavior, then, is that those claims were true. For whatever reason, her husband really had forced her to have sex with other men, and despite the absolution granted her by the Pope at Piacenza, the unhappy queen spent the rest of her life atoning for a loss of sexual purity that was not her fault. End quote. I'm more inclined towards the second interpretation. Yeah, there was a lot of fake news going around in the 11th century, but I don't think Eupraxia would have had any need to make this story up in particular. She could have said pretty much anything about Henry IV, and it would have served as ammunition. Eupraxia chose to use the truth as her weapon, but as McLaughlin points out, the consequences were far more dire for her than they were for her monster of a husband. But they did negatively affect Henry to some degree, and so benefited Pope Urban, who was more than happy to use Eupraxia's and Conrad's testimony to take shots at Henry IV. What with Urban having taken the Lateran and now allying with Henry's son and wife, it seemed the German emperor was becoming less and less of a threat every day. Around the time of the Council of Piacenza, Urban agreed to crown Conrad emperor, if he promised to support the reform papacy. And on April 10th, just a few weeks after the council, Conrad and Urban participated in a ceremony that dated back to the days of Constantine. Conrad led Urban's horse around, performing the quote-unquote office of groom. This ceremony hadn't been performed since the 9th century, and it shows Urban's willingness to look to the past for ways forward. So an envoys from Alexios Komnenos arrived. Well, that was an interesting opportunity. I want to remind you all of January 6th, 756, about 340 years earlier. What happened then, you ask? Well, that was the day Pope Stephen II anointed Pippin the Short as King of the Franks, marking the beginning of the Pope's alliance with the Western King, and closing the book on the Pope's subservience to the Byzantine Roman Emperor. Now, I'm not saying Pope Urban was envisioning just flip-flopping, friendship with the Holy Roman Emperor over, now the Byzantine Roman Emperor is my best friend, but Popes needed support. Sure, Conrad was supposed to eventually become the new German Roman Emperor, but it couldn't hurt to make an alliance with the Byzantine Roman Emperor as well. Not only for the sake of healing all this talk of East-West schism, but to avoid a repeat of the German-Byzantine-Roman Emperor Dream Team of 1084 that had led to this whole climate situation in the first place. A new German Emperor in Conrad, and a Byzantine-Roman Emperor who owed him big time. That sounded pretty good. Rustling up the forces needed to help the Byzantines out would also work towards strengthening the recruitment channels that could be used to drum up a papal army. Who knows? Maybe just as Gregory had planned to use his proto-crusading army to beat the shit out of Robert Giscar, Urban could use his crusading army to beat the shit out of Henry and enforce his new ally, Conrad's right to rule. But what did Alexios actually want from the Pope? One interesting point is the following. Alexios's main war aims, as we'll see play out later on, would have been the cities of Nicaea and Antioch. Both of these cities had military and religious significance. Nicaea, modern Iznik, which Kilij had brazenly made his capital, was located just about 200 kilometers from Constantinople, and it being in Kilij Arslan's hands made it much harder for the emperor to try to campaign along the western Anatolian coast, as he could easily be attacked from the rear. Nicaea was also religiously significant because it was where the first ecumenical council had taken place. You know, the one we talked about in episode 2.1 that made Arianism a heresy. Remember? Yeah, you remember. Now, Antioch is located at the corner where Syria curves up into Anatolia, 
As a coastal city, it was strategically positioned to serve as a foundation for the re-establishment of Roman authority along the southern coastal region of Anatolia, as well as making tentative forays into Syria and Armenia, which had, just decades earlier, been Romania's fancy new toys. It was also religiously significant as well, though. Antioch was one of the five cities of the Pentarchy, along with Alexandria, Constantinople, Rome, and Jerusalem. Along with Alexandria, it made the cut for this exclusive club because it had served as a major hub for early Christianity. So, if Alexios's main aims were Nicaea and Antioch, where does Jerusalem figure in? And why was it the endpoint of the campaign? Here, I want to point out two historiographical camps with differing views as to what exactly Pope Urban wanted out of the First Crusade. Though within both camps there are differences of opinion, we can simplify and boil their viewpoints down to one clear distinction. Camp number one prefers to view the First Crusade as a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. This explanation of the expedition is more firmly rooted in Latin Christian belief and tradition. It was a blend of papal ideas of holy war and the tradition of pilgrimage. Camp 2 prefers to view aid to the Byzantines as the more key aim. This view is more rooted in Byzantine history, as it paints the Franks as the latest in a long line of Roman mercenaries, much more along the lines of the Pechenegs and the Rus and other Franks like Roussel de Bayeul. As a general rule, specialists on medieval Western Europe tend towards Camp 1. Anglophone as well as Francophone historians of the last half century are usually partial to this take as well or takes on this take. And if the fact that I spent an episode on both Holy War and Pilgrimage betrays a recent preference for this camp, well, I can blame that on the sources I read. Meanwhile, specialists on Byzantium tend towards Camp 2. Our first season fits much more into this vein. I think in particular of a quote I used from Michael Angold. Alexios was using the Italians much as the emperors of the 10th century had used the Rus to strengthen the empire's naval and commercial resources. The appeal to Urban II was intended to complement this by harnessing the military potential of the Franks. End quote. However, this is a general rule. Take, for example, Bernardus Bachrach, whose work often focuses on Western Europe. His political biography of Falknera was the main source for our opening last time. He has a much more Camp 2 view of events. Quote, One of the most successful periods for the Byzantines in this long and drawn-out conflict with the Muslims was under the leadership of the Emperor Alexius I Komnenos, between the years 1097 and 1099. During this brief period, the Muslims were put on the defensive. The Byzantines made substantial territorial gains against the forces of Islam. The Christians enjoyed a series of victories, including the capture of fortress cities, such as Nicaea and Antioch. This period of success was due in large part to the effective deployment of very large numbers of Western troops against Muslim assets. Specialists in Western medieval history, of course, referred to this episode in Byzantine military history as the First Crusade. End quote. I just love the snark. Now, the fact that Jerusalem will indeed be recorded by Frankish historians as the crown jewel of this expedition makes much more sense if you view the First Crusade as essentially a massive armed pilgrimage. And at first glance, this seems to be a point in favor of the camp who prefer to view the First Crusade as a primarily Western affair, with little to no input from the Byzantines, who had no interest in reclaiming Jerusalem. However, if Urban was more focused on Jerusalem than aiding Byzantium, why not go directly to Jerusalem? Western Europe had ships by now. In fact, after the Norman conquest of Sicily, they had gained access to the trade routes that connected both Palermo and Amalfi to the Levant. As I briefly mentioned last time, the Amalfitans had actually set up a hospital in Jerusalem. Urban had very close ties to the Italo-Normans. He'd actually granted the Giscard's brother, Roger I, Count of Sicily, the right to appoint bishops in Sicily, compromising on the whole lay investiture thing that had led to outright war between the Pope and the German Emperor, Henry IV. And part of allying with Conrad was securing a marriage between him and Roger's daughter. The cities of Genoa and Pisa were also allying themselves with the Reformed papacy. And as their sack of Muslim cities in the Western Mediterranean clearly showed, they were capable of launching naval assaults. See episode 1.7. As Bernardus Bachrach points out in his chapter, Papal War Aims in 1096, which I quoted from earlier, quote, in support of the evidence regarding the availability of large numbers of Christian-owned ships and the military prowess of Western Europeans against Muslim assets, 
It is helpful that some very useful information survives concerning the famous Madia campaign of 1087. In this operation, a naval expeditionary force drawn from the fleets of the city of Pisa, Genoa, Rome, and Amalfi was mobilized with an estimated fleet strength of somewhere between 300 to 400 vessels. This flotilla transported to and landed in North Africa, an army of some 30,000 men. In other words, a force more than twice the size of the army that William the Conqueror had landed in England some two decades earlier. The Medea invasion force, which landed in North Africa, was more than double the size of the Christian army that finally recaptured Jerusalem in 1099. The coalition forces launched against Medea, which were raised from the resources, but certainly not the total resources, of a small group of Italian city-states, were landed in battle-ready condition on the shore of the North African mainland. The Christian army captured the fortress city of Medea and the town's fortified merchant suburb, and forced the surrender of Tamin, the Muslim governor. The latter paid a huge ransom in gold to the invaders, surrendered all Christian prisoners, including slaves, that he held, and gave both the Pisans and the Genoese the right to operate freely in all of the territory, both land and sea, under his supposed jurisdiction. The Medea campaign is important, not only because it demonstrated the Western capacity to mobilize a large fleet and a large army for amphibious operations against Muslim-held territory. In addition, this campaign secured a position on the North African mainland for the support of Western Mediterranean Christian naval operations further to the east. The fact that this campaign was orchestrated by Pope Victor III and was under the spiritual direction of Bishop Benedict of Modena, who very likely served as papal legate, makes very clear that the Roman pontiff, or at least his advisors, were well aware of the types of military assets that were available for war in the Western Mediterranean against the Muslims prior to the First Crusade. End quote. In short, Urban had the infrastructure to ferry his pilgrims directly to the Holy Land, and he knew it. So why take the land route? Well, it's not even just that they took the land route, which had the various contingents of the army meet in Constantinople, but that after that beginning, they followed a trajectory that clearly aligned with Alexius's needs, more than a desire to directly arrive at Jerusalem. Looking at the way the expedition played out, it becomes clear really quickly that providing aid to Alexios was a main aim of this expedition. Urban simply sold the whole thing as an armed pilgrimage, with the big prize at the end. Remember, Urban is very familiar with the kinds of things that motivate fellows like Falk the Black. And it's not helping out the Roman Emperor. It's penance, provided by pilgrimages, to the center of the world, Jerusalem. Although, we'll get into exactly how Urban came to this decision to merge holy war and pilgrimage, and how much choice he had in the matter, next time. Now, some historians, mostly Byzantinists, actually look to Alexios as the source of this whole bait-and-switch. It was the Roman emperor who recommended presenting the whole affair as a pilgrimage. For example, Peter Frankopan, in The Call from the East, which we've discussed before, says, quote, it seems clear, therefore, that Alexios knew how to appeal to Westerners. The emperor deliberately used the lure of Jerusalem to draw military support to Byzantium and to cast the empire's troubles and its political interests in terms of Christian obligation. End quote. It is true, as Frankopan points out, that the Byzantines had a long history of hiring Latin Christian mercenaries, and as we mentioned in episode 1.16, Alexios had already interacted with Frankish nobility on pilgrimage. Specifically, Count Robert of Flanders had sent 500 knights, which Alexios had used against the... Pechenegs? Cumans? Bulgars? Call us in episode 1.16, some step guys. Anyway, there are also two letters that Alexios sent to an Italian abbot after the Crusaders arrived in the empire. The Roman emperor seems very well versed with Western ideas regarding pilgrimage. To quote Jonathan Shepard in his article, aspects of Byzantine attitudes and policy towards the West in the 10th and 11th centuries. A remarkably sympathetic and understanding tone is struck in two letters of Alexius to Abbot Odorisius of Monte Cassino. These were, admittedly, written after the Crusaders had reached Asia Minor. But they, in any case, show the extent to which Alexius, aware of Westerners' religious susceptibilities, was ready to resort to their jargon. He refers to the Crusaders as pilgrims, employing the term by which Urban II had designated them. Alexius says, Blessed indeed are they, as they have in their good intentions brought about their deaths. These statements go beyond the call of diplomatic regrets, and particularly in the use of blessed for the dead, they seem to echo Western ideas of the spiritual benefits accruing to those who had taken the crusading vow. End quote. 
So was the whole pilgrimage angle really Alexis's idea? Well, it's a possibility, but I doubt it. We'll get into exactly what Urban said to Latin Europe next time, but I don't think the concept of armed pilgrimage had been clearly formulated by anyone in March of 1095. Alexius was likely expecting something closer to what Pope Gregory had set up with Mikhail Lucas. Still, to me at least, it seems clear that supporting the Byzantine position was a key element of the First Crusade. It played into the century-long negotiation with Constantinople over papal primacy. To quote Bachrock once more, a very large Western army at Constantinople, one that potentially could frighten Alexius while operating under papal warrant, would make it possible for Urban's legate, Adamar of Lepuy, to be in a position to encourage, if not coerce, the emperor to act properly in regard to healing the schism. In short, it would seem that Pope Urban sent the crusaders to Constantinople and expected a quid pro quo for providing an army to fight the Turks. Alexius was to abandon the schism with the Roman Church, and the Patriarch of Constantinople was to recognize papal superiority. End quote. But whatever control Urban thought he would have over the Army of the Cross would quickly evaporate. The participants in the First Crusade had their own objectives, and would further distort whatever Urban had agreed to at Piacenza in 1095. That mutation would begin as soon as Urban began spreading the good word throughout France. Shortly after Piacenza, Urban headed into France, his home turf. There, he would embark on a 14-month-long tour of the country, drumming up support for his endeavor. In the middle of this tour, he would arrive at the Council of Clermont, where he would give one of the most famous crusade sermons of all time, formally presenting his expedition to Latin Christendom. But Urban's exact words at Clermont were never recorded, and it was only after his death, after the First Crusade, that they would be incorporated into the histories of those seeking to make sense of what had just happened. Next time on History of the Utremer, we'll be doing our best to not only understand what Urban actually said, but how and why his words motivated thousands to take up the cross and answer the call from the East. <laughs>